Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John adds this authorial comment. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Now, not very many people are able to find out ahead of time that their lives are going to end with a martyr's death for the sake of Christ. Peter was one of those people, one of a, a small handful who knew this is how my life will end. And the Lord here, you can see in the language, you will stretch out your hands. And history tells us Peter was crucified. History says that Peter was actually crucified upside down, which is interesting Two times in John's gospel, when referencing the crucifixion, our Lord says that he would be lifted up. In, in, and uh, John says that he would be lifted up like the serpent on the pole. But here he doesn't say he would be lifted up. It just says he would stretch out his hands. And if you see a lot of the pictures of Peter's martyrdom, he's actually on a cross that's lower to the ground. But I wonder, how would this change your perspective on the Christian life if from the outset someone came to you like in many countries in our day they preach the gospel they say well the, the, the Lord God commands you to repent and to believe the gospel and I'm begging with you and pleading with you to come and to place your faith in Jesus Christ he's the only way of salvation but you need to know that when you do this and you walk out that door there's a price on your head I wonder if that would have changed a lot of our introduction into the Christian faith how would that change your thinking or your life even right now? If I said, I just got a message, they're in the parking lot. When you walk out, we don't know what they're going to do. But they're here. We know that we've gathered illegally. We know we, we have broken the laws of the land and worship, and they're here. So God be with you. How would that change the way that you, you carry out your Christian life from day to day, if you knew for a fact that at some point in time your testimony for Christ, your confession of Christ or the public proclamation of the gospel would set into motion the events that would bring about your death. Peter was told what would happen to him. And Christ concludes the information by saying, follow me. He doesn't give us a step-by-step, -step, or he doesn't give Peter a step-by-step -step method with how to deal with this shock. This would have been a shocking thing. He doesn't say, all right, now I just told you that, and here's what you need to do. He doesn't say, well, when the time comes, here are four principles that will help you cope with that reality. Here are the documents that you're going to want to get in line, you know, because after you die, people are going to have to go through your stuff and your bank accounts, and they're going to have to deal with your property. So here are the documents that you're going to want to go ahead and get notarized and have that stuff in place so that when the time comes, nobody's going to have to, you know, fumble through all of that. He doesn't say any of that. He says, you're going to die. Follow me. Mm -hmm. And that's it. 
And then Peter, after this, he gets a case of what I call the whatabouts. In verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John walking behind him. And Peter says, well, what about this guy? And Jesus says, in essence, that's none of your business. It doesn't matter about that guy. Your job is to follow me. You follow me. And he says it again, follow me. This is what we do when we come to a sermon about suffering. And the preacher has to say things about suffering and about our lives and the things that we do day in and day out that, that prove that we are tethered to this world. We immediately get the whatabouts. What about them? Or what about that person? Or what about that guy? Our, our whatabouts never look at the people who have actually suffered. We look at our lives. Very rarely do we say, but Lord, what about under the underground church in China. That, what about the Christians who are being killed? Why can't I have that, Lord? Very rarely. But when someone puts their finger on something in your life that says, do you not see that you are so bound to this earth that it, it, it's hard for you to even present yourself as a follower of Christ and you're going to look at somebody else who doesn't have to follow your exact prescription because it's not laid out for them according to the word. Their cross... It's not your cross, but very often we say, what about that person? What about them? I mean, and we have to understand that going into a study of the church of Smyrna, suffering church, that if we have the whatabouts, if we have this notion that, well, my job is to receive my orders, compare them with everybody else's orders, and then I'll decide if I'm going to follow my orders, we might as well stop. Because that's not how we are able to, or we're not allowed to think of the Christian life that way. Your job, according to Christ, is follow me. For some people, that's going to look very awful, very difficult. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul was one of those who was shown how much he would suffer from the outset. And boy, did it get him nervous and scared. And he went in his room and locked the door and said, oh, I get, I'm not going anywhere. No, that's not what happened. It lit him on fire. He knew. Everybody has a different cross, a different means, a different way, some specific thing that is required of them in following Christ that other people don't have. You, if you're not in my shoes, I think I can say with some bit of truthfulness, nobody in this room has yet to or will ever understand what an elder of a congregation has to go through. And at the very same time, I can say, some of you have been through things that I pray to God, I never have to suffer. But I can't look at you and say, well, what about them? And you can't look at me and say, well, what about him? We have to keep our eyes on Christ. Because this is the Christian life. It's following Christ. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. That's our goal. Come out like Christ. And, and he will have his people conform to his image. That's the goal. And a lot of times when we talk about being conformed to the image of Christ, we only talk about the moral aspect of it, which is there. I, he is holy. And my duty is to follow him to be holy. But very rarely do we ever take the time to uh, be reminded that if I'm going to follow him and into his holiness, I have to follow the same methodology, the same process that he went through. 
His process was suffering leading to glory. If I want the glory, I don't get to bypass the suffering. If I'm going to fulfill the moral aspect of being holy like my Lord, I don't get it without the suffering. I don't get it without following His pattern. And we talked about a little bit of that as we studied sanctification. There is a mortifying, a putting to death, and then a, a putting on. And this is Christ's method. He knew and agreed to the process in eternity. The Scriptures say, Sacrifices and offerings you have not required of me, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I've come to do your will. He knew from eternity that his task laid out for him by his Father was to take on the nature of a man, take the nature of one of these dirt creatures on this tiny dirt ball in his universe, take their nature onto him so that he could die, so that some of them could kill him, and suffer the curse of the wrath of God in the stead of His people. And He did not say, well, what about... He came. He did it. And so He comes. We see throughout His ministry, He defends this process. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil comes to Him. We talked about this from one of the other Gospels. The devil comes to Him and, and, and suggests everything He's come to accomplish. Authority, kingdom, rule, the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give it all to you. You can have it if you just bow down. You can bypass the cross. You don't have to die. I'll give it to you. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't take it because he knew there's only one pathway to, to true authority, true power, and that was through suffering. When he began to tell his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer, Peter was the first one to rear up on his hind legs and say, over my dead body, that's not happening. And what did he say? You've got your mind set on the things of man, not the things of God. Because this is the way men think. I can figure out my way to bypass the suffering and still get the prize. That's what we think. That's not God's way. That's man's way. He dies, he establishes the pattern in his death and resurrection, and then he, he, follow, or he commands us to follow him. We see this in the Gospels. You, if any man is going to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is the pattern. So we can't, we're not able to, we're not allowed to bypass that. Paul even said that we, we, we have this great hope, we have this inheritance. We, have, we, we are co-heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with Him. It's the only way. We can't be like our Lord if we don't follow Him. And following Christ is more than just imitating His morality. It's getting behind Him on the same path that He trod, which is the pathway of suffering. But this is what we do. We think, we entertain hopes of glory. We entertain hopes of being with Christ someday, but we don't want to be with Him right now. When all of our lives, all of your lives, trace it out, start tomorrow, make a list, and prove me wrong, are like a bird making a nest. Out to get a twig, bring it back. Out to get a piece of grass, bring it back. Out to get a piece of fuzz, bring it back. Whole lives spent running back and forth, back and forth, to make a comfortable little place to live. Or like... Uh, 
a sailor trying to tie a boat to a dock, looping over the hook, loop, 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 so that the boat doesn't flow away. That's, that's our lives. Loop after loop after loop. Everything that we're doing almost as if to keep from getting to glory. Tying ourselves to the world. And then thinking that something's going to happen someday where we like to be like Jesus. But right now, we really love the things of this world. And that is not Christianity. That's not following Christ. We worship our pillows. He didn't have a pillow. We spend our lives building houses. He didn't have a house. Everything that we're, we pour ourselves into, we turn to the pages of Scripture, we read the Gospels, and we say, I can't find anything in my life that looks like that. But I'm following Him. Very often we want to know what, what it looks like. What, what's my, my cross to, to bear? What, what is suffering going to be? And Christ says, follow me. What about these folks over here? We know Christians. I know Christians, God-honoring Christians, who have things I'll never have. What about those, what about, about those folks over there? You follow me. Well, what about you follow me? That's, that's, you have to hear Christ say that for you. We, we can't just overhear Christ saying, you follow me to somebody else, and then say, okay, okay, I, I heard it. You have to hear Christ say, follow me to you. And when you hear his voice, you will follow him because his sheep always hear his voice. So we, 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 we have to start there with that mindset. As we walk through this stuff, and I say things, you deal with you. I'm going to deal as generally, but you've got to deal with you. Now last week we walked through the, the letter to Ephesus, and it's just, just by way of, you know, just notice that nobody in Smyrna said, well, what about Ephesus? What about Laodicea? I mean, they got it made. They're lukewarm, but what about them? None of that. But we began with these two questions. What were they doing wrong? And then what were they doing right? But notice in this letter, there is not a single word about what the church in Smyrna was doing. Not one word. Now, we can assume some things, I, I think, but not a word about what they were actually doing. Everything that is laid out here is what's happening to them and what they are going to have to endure. Notice at the beginning in verse eight, he, or verse 9, and we'll come back to verse 8, he doesn't even say, I know your works. He just says, I know your tribulation. Why is that? Because I believe they need to know that he knows their tribulation. I believe they are fully aware that he knows their works. They don't, he doesn't need to talk about their works because they know he knows their works. This is the mindset of a church in this condition. They don't need to be reminded of their, the things that they're doing great. They don't need it. Their mind is so fixed upon Christ and what he has given them to do. They're so clearly the path laid out before him that they're walking that, that they don't need to be reminded of their works. This church needs to be reminded that their Lord knows their tribulation. So what I want to do is begin, just notice their present and future condition. After, we, after the opening salutation, which we'll come back to at the end, they are described in where they are and then what's about to happen to them. First, their present condition. The Lord says, I know, that's the same word as in the last letter, a perfect, complete, I have absolute knowledge of your tribulation. Now, 
We talked about the word tribulation back in chapter 1. I went back and listened to that. I don't think I was as detailed in, in teasing out this word. It's used throughout the Scriptures in the New Testament. All but three times it is descriptive of the suffering that comes upon the saints because they live in a fallen world. One time it's used as a metaphor for childbirth, and two times it is descriptive of the judgment of the wicked. Never is it used to describe the silliness of the tribulation of the great tribulation of the seven years, the three and a half years. It never is used in that term the way that most of us have been raised to think of that word. It simply means affliction. It's the suffering of the saints. Paul or John at the very beginning says, I am your partner in the tribulation. He's sharing in this condition of Christians in a fallen world. And so the Lord, if that's not enough, He actually explicitly describes what is their tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty. They were extremely poor, destitute of all earthly possessions. And he says, I know your, or I know the slander. Literally, and yours might have the footnote there, the word is blasphemy. To blaspheme God means to say that the things of God, that God's ways, that God's goodness are actually not good. That when God does something good, you say that's evil. And it's the same thing with people. If you're, if you're going to blaspheme a person, what you're going to do is take the, thing, the good things about them and say those are not good, those are bad. It's, it's a slandering. Attributing evil to them falsely. And this slander, it says, was coming from those who say they are Jews, but are not. They but are a synagogue of Satan. So this is ethnic Jews claiming to be as they always had to be the people of God. But, as we know, they are not Christians. They have rejected the Messiah that came to them. And Paul says in Romans 2, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. Jesus has no problem. Jesus has no problem referring to these ethnic Jews who had rejected the Messiah, who were persecuting His people. He has no problem referring to them as a synagogue of Satan. They're doing the work of the devil. They are slandering the true Israel of God. We see in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 what this is. is merely the manifestation of the seed of the serpent warring against the seed of Christ or the, the seed of the woman all the way back from Genesis 3. So how do these things go together? Why is there tribulation, poverty, slander because of the Jews? Well, Smyrna, remember, was a very busy port city, the most beautiful of these Asian cities, and it did have a large Jewish population. In this day and time, like we said many times in the Gospels, Judaism was accepted and allowed in the Roman Empire. And for a long time, as Christianity begins to take off, Rome, they don't know the difference. They just assume these Christians are just another group of the Jews. They, they carried along the same practices, many of them. Oftentimes they met in the synagogues. They, 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 if you don't know anything about the religion, you don't know much of a difference. And so they allowed it to continue but obviously that's going to upset the Jews who despised the Christians all throughout the New Testament. The greatest persecutions and the, the, especially the false teachings are coming from the Judaizers. And so, what do you do 
if you want to snuff out a sect of people who are worshiping in a way that you think is blasphemous because they're saying that this crucified carpenter is your Messiah. And you reject that. So what do you do? Well, the Jews were in control of much of the commerce back in those days. Interestingly, that's not changed a whole lot. They were in, in control of much of the commerce. And so here's what we'll do. We will clearly distinguish ourselves. We will make sure the government knows they're not us and we're not them. And so in Rome, believing that the Christians are a dangerous cult, they've been slandered, what, they, what they're doing looks good, but it's not good. You, you better watch them. They're divisive. They're going to they're gonna start an uprising. They're going to try to take over the empire. You better watch them. Well, when Rome gets wind of that, Rome who has already required that everybody pinch off a little bit incense and worship Caesar, they get wind of that, and they're not quite as kind to the Christians. Again, remember back in this day, there were these trade guilds, these labor unions. If you wanted to be a part of these in the society, you had to join the, the uh, imperial cult. You would have to at some point say, Caesar is Lord, and then you were allowed to shop. Then you were allowed to work, have a job. If you wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, no job, no working, no shopping. So, draw out this distinction, make it really clear, sort of make them a nuisance to Rome. And the Christians, all of a sudden, they don't have jobs, they don't have money, they can't buy, they can't sell, they can't trade. Of course, the Jews had no problem capitulating to that thing for profit. You know, well, sure, I can say that, no big deal. I can say it and it doesn't mean anything in my heart, and so I can say Caesar is Lord and continue right on my way. In other words, here, here's the condition that the Smyrnian Christians find themselves in. Just set aside your exclusive worship of that Jewish carpenter who was crucified, who you say came back from the dead. Just set that aside. Don't be so exclusive. And you can work. You can buy. You can sell. You can make a living. Hold to your convictions. Hold to the exclusivity of Christ. And you lose all of these privileges. The Christians here in Smyrna held to their convictions, and so they were impoverished. But notice what he said after he addressed their poverty. I know your poverty, but you are rich. So how can one be in poverty and also be rich? They had lost all of their worldly possessions. They had lost all of their temporal necessities. But they still had Christ. They had the one thing most needful. They had the Spirit of God. They were rich in faith, rich in grace. They had every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They had everything. They are wealthy, and, and from that we could begin to deduce what they were doing as a congregation. But they're wealthy. They have Christ. In other words, like the Apostle Paul, their poverty, their suffering had not damaged their spiritual condition. It had helped that they were not in a place where they were saying, boy, I really wish we could be a biblical church, but we just don't have any money. No, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. Material things in Scripture are not always exactly synonymous with wealth. We have to remember this, especially in the Proverbs. When we read about wealth, yes, every good gift comes down from God. Yes, if you have a dollar, God gave it. And if it gets taken away, God took it. The true treasure, or the true prize, the true treasure of the Scriptures is God. That's what we're after. 
If you can't see that, you, you, don't, you don't Bible. That's the whole point of the book. We are the people of God. He is the God of His people. If you have Him, you've got everything that you were created to have. And they had it, but they were impoverished. By the world's standards, they were poor. And that's not all. He explains it's only going to get worse. At the end of verse 10, he says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, they hadn't, in this time of civilization, they had not gotten as intelligent as us, so their prisons were not correctional institutions. When somebody goes to prison nowadays, the idea is this this murderer, this rapist, this drug dealer, this child molester, put him behind bars for a while and make him live with all of the other murderers, rapists, child molesters, and drug dealers, and, and whatever, money launderers. Put them all together and then check on them in 25, 30 years, and maybe they're better. But that's not how the prisons worked in this day and time. A prison was a place where you sat without food, without water, cold, damp, sickly, until they were ready to bring you out and kill you. So he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So not only is it bad, but it's about to get worse. But notice the purpose of the devil's actions. And that's, that's meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek. They're going to be thrown into prison that they may be tested, put to the test. Their faith is actually going to be proven and strengthened through the actions of the devil. The testing would serve to remove any remaining dross in their faith. This is an important principle in the Revelation. We'll see it over and over and over again. That the devil is used by God, especially in the present time, for the purification of the church, for the strengthening of the people of God. The worst that he can do only serves to benefit the people of God and make us stronger. Like Job, like Peter, like Paul's thorn in the flesh, all it could do was keep him from becoming conceited. So even the wickedness of Satan is working together for the good of the saints. He's going to throw them into prison. They're going to be tested. For ten days, he says, you will have tribulation. Now remember that the number ten represents a quantitative fullness. In other words, the, the full number of time. An exhaustive testing. We'll see... That proved in a moment. But this language is actually taken from Daniel chapter 1. And John uses Daniel a lot in the Revelation. Remember in Daniel chapter 1, the four Hebrew boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they're taken into Babylon, and they are basically said, we're going to feed you, we're going to take care of you, we'll give you the king's food. And because of the Word of God and their convictions to stand by the Word of God, they could not in good conscience eat the food that was given to them. And so Daniel presents this, this other option. He says, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. In that setting, ten days was sufficient time 
to prove that God would be faithful in preserving His people who stood fast to the testimony of the Word of God and their convictions. It would, he would prove Himself. Now, I wonder how many of us in that situation with Daniel would have said, Well, God doesn't want us to go hungry. God doesn't want me to starve to death. Who said? Who told you God doesn't want you to starve to death? Where did you get that? Not from this book. How many would have said, well, I mean, we've got to be wise. We're in a new society now. We're holding strictly to those ancient words. Well, that's not going to prove very beneficial to our case. I mean, if I die, I can't be very useful to God. Who told you that? Everything I read is from men who've died. They are beneficial. They're useful. I think it's amazing how good we are at using one part of Scripture to justify departing from another part of Scripture. We want to throw in wisdom. I've got to be wise. When the Bible doesn't teach these things. And so Daniel and his companions stood firm for the allotted time. And their obedience was supernaturally blessed by God. They were fatter. They ate only vegetables for ten days. They got fatter. That's supernatural. So this is the picture in Smyrna. They're suffering. They would continue to suffer. The, the affliction was about to increase to a climax. And all that would do would, would be to serve to remove the dross of their faith and strengthen them. So then notice Christ's specific instructions. What do you say to a congregation in this condition? Things are bad and they're only going to get worse. Notice what he says. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. More is coming. Don't be afraid. The end of verse 10, be faithful unto death. This would be an exhaustive testing. Unto death. Notice the climax of their tribulation is not the second coming of Christ. It is their physical death. So they're impoverished, they're slandered, they've lost their rights, they've lost their poverty. The screws of affliction are about to be clamped down even tighter and they're going to die because they would not yield their allegiance to any other than Christ. They would not cave in to the idolatry of their culture and Christ says, just be faithful unto death. Hold up, hold fast and hold out until they kill you. That's your job. Now, when we picture this in our minds, we, we think, well, that was just the men, right? Like all the women are chil- and children are back at the church crying and the men are being taken off. And we men kind of get brave. Like, I would, I, I, I would do that for my family. But it doesn't say that. It just says some of you. And if church history tells us anything, it tells us that men, women, and children have been slaughtered for Christ. Are being slaughtered for Christ to this very day. Children ripped from their parents' arms. Wives ripped from their husbands' grasp and hauled off to be killed. Now what would you do, ladies? You look down at your children's sunken faces, emaciated bodies, shivering and diseased. All they need is some food. All you have to do is say, never mind. We're not Christians anymore. We'll we'll say Caesar is Lord. And they get food. They're taken care of. They're fine. They're healthy. Just like that. They they get what they need. Stop being so exclusively Christian and your children will be fine. 
Men, what do you do? When all you have to do is admit, perhaps there are other viable interpretations of the fourth commandment, and, and so if I have to work a job, I have to provide for my family, they're going to die. Necessity and mercy, right? Necessity and mercy. I have to work, and so I'll just I'll cave on this one principle because, well, they're, they're going to die if I don't work. What did they do? He says, be faithful unto death. We've got this idea that to suffer and die is bad. That's the point. We're following the man who suffered and died and came back from the dead. The whole point is this. Can you imagine being in poverty? No. Can you... I wonder how many of us have ever even seen a poor Christian... To use the language of the Hebrews, how, how many of us men would joyfully accept the plundering of our property? Most of us would say, I would never allow it. I will provide for my family. When Christ might say, no, you need to die. You need to let your children watch you die so they believe your Savior is powerful enough to raise your dead body someday. See, This is what we do. God, God would never want me to be in poverty. It's, it's, it's a prosperity gospel. We believe it. We, we right. condemn it and we believe it. Right. It's the prosperity gospel. I, I have to provide or I'm, I'm failing in my duty as a father, forgetting that you are first a Christian, then a father. The specific principles of our duty to God must take preeminence over general principles. Most of us, I would imagine for our lifetimes, are going to have the grace of living fairly easy lives compared to what our brothers and sisters have suffered and are suffering around the world. But the general principle of following Christ does not change. So what would you do? You loosen your grip on your biblical convictions because it's hard, or do you loosen your grip on the things of this world? Christ says, be faithful unto Death. What does that mean if it doesn't mean stand on the clear revelation of God's word no matter what, even if they kill you for it? That's what it means. There's, it's as plain as it could be. We need to get to a position where we are able to tell our wives and our children, maybe we don't even have to tell them. They just know. If my daddy ever has to pick between his Lord and me, he's picking his Lord. When our wives say, if my husband ever has to choose between the Lord and me, and we pray it never happens. But our wives would say, I know who he would pick. He would pick his Lord. And our, our wives and our children would stand behind us and they would say, go, Daddy. Don't you hold on to us. You go. But we idolize good things, especially in our circles. We believe the family is God's gift. We believe that wives are a blessing, that children are a blessing. And we've developed through that an entire Christian system that would be completely foreign to Smyrna. It wouldn't work there. Because we obsess over these things. We raise good things higher than Christ. The Smyrnians had not done that. They were poor in earthly goods, but they were rich in Christ. We are rich in earthly goods, and we are satisfied with talking about Christ. 
We are satisfied with talking about those who are rich in Christ. We are satisfied with reading the biographies of those who used to be rich in Christ while we sit and are just rich in earthly goods. This, this letter, there are a lot of things that are taught in the Christian church that simply won't work. If you've got a Christianity that won't work everywhere, in all places, in all times, from the two, between the two advents of Christ, you don't have biblical Christianity. It won't work. We have a Christianity here that would not work in Smyrna. Most of us, if we walked down the streets of Smyrna and lived the way we lived in Smyrna, they would not recognize us as Christians because we're so far from what they were. And we make every provision to insulate ourselves from suffering and then we decry our ignorance of Christ. I just want to know Him more. Then die. Well, I just, I just want to know more about Him. Paul said this is how you know Him. He, he laid it out for us. Share in the fellowship of His sufferings. That's how you know Him. That's how you know anybody. You get in their shoes and you walk where they walked and you know Him. And so we talk about it. Oh, I just wish I knew Christ more. I just, want to be, I just want to be more like Christ. No, you don't. Stop saying it. We don't want to be like Christ because everything that we do, again, is insulating us from being like Christ. This is the only way to suffer. Now, we would say, I think most of us would say, well, wait a second, we aren't rich. Okay, you can look down at your feet. If you can't see your toes, you're probably rich. You got shoes, you got pants, we've got a roof. If you're in this room, you're rich. If you have less than other people in our country, and you're able to say things like, but we aren't rich, it's because you're coveting what they have, and so you're, you're just so fluent in what everybody else has that you can make that comparison very quickly. Well, I'm not rich. I know who's rich because I stare at their stuff all the time. Or... Again, you, you, maybe you don't covet, but you do spend all of your time analyzing everything that other people have to boost your pride in your mind saying, well, at least I don't have that. I'm suffering because I don't have what he has. I'm suffering because I don't have what he has. In, the, in these situations, your mind and heart is still constantly drawn away from Christ and to the things of the world. You don't have to be rich to be covetous or idolatrous or prideful or arrogant Can you imagine the saints in Smyrna busying themselves with the things that we busy ourselves with? Just imagine what a day in the life of a Smyrnian Christian looks like. What would they think about our monthly bank statements? What would they think about your hourly conversations? Would they even recognize us as one of our own or one of their own? Now, am I saying that all Christians must be poor? I'm saying follow Christ and stop worrying about who's poor and who's rich. Follow Christ. When you're following Christ, you don't ask silly questions like that. There are a lot of people, again, who have much less than others, who are the most covetous, worldly, prideful people on earth. Very often, the most humbling thing you can do is, in humility, receive the gifts that God gives rather than standing and rejecting them so that you can verbalize and display how much you don't have to other people. Christ does not here give them a, a long, drawn-out lesson about how to manage their anxiety. 
He doesn't deal with them like, like we do with our children when they have to get a shot. It's going to be okay. Just, just stay calm. It's going to be all right. It's not going to hurt. He doesn't do any of that. Notice he's very short and direct. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. Now, very often we take short language like that as representative of, of distant coldness. And we imagine him just sort of barking orders over his shoulder. I don't think that's the case. I think the shortness of the language here is because there's a very clearly understood relationship between the Smyrnians and their Lord. Some of you have had this, this experience where you have trained under, under an, a, a, a teacher in some field. You're the apprentice. You follow them. And after a while, you, you learn the ways. You learn what to do. You know what it means to be an apprentice. And you've been there so long that he doesn't have to turn around and say, Now listen. You know that I don't think I'm better than you. I'm not trying to be bossy. I'm not trying to, to lord anything over you. But if you don't mind, if you have a second, could you please hand me the half-inch socket? That's not how it works. Once you get in a routine, it's half-inch. Three-eighths. Hand it. Boom. Hand it. Boom. Why? Because you've spent so much time knowing what's happening. You're standing ready at attention for the orders. You don't need a lot. Christians who suffer like this, they don't need a lot of petting and, and primping to keep walking with the Lord. All they need is just one word. Do not fear. I know your tribulation. Do not fear. Be faithful. I've got what I need. I'm gone. I've heard my Lord again. Now here's our problem. Death to self is, is requisite at the outset of Christianity. We talked about that in sanctification. We have to die. We, we are crucified. If you're a Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. And then mortifying the flesh is required ongoing throughout the Christian life. We're always killing. We're always putting to death our sins. And so when you, when you get to the, the state that Smyrna was in, your heart and your mind has been shaped by suffering. You have been regularly looking to Christ for days, weeks, months, years. You know Him more and more. You're sharing in the fellowship of His sufferings. And when things are about to get worse, you are standing, waiting at attention, ready to move, ready to act at whatever He says. I'm ready to do it. But... Most of the time, we don't spend our lives doing the first part. We're not dying to ourselves. We're not mortifying the deeds of the flesh. And so if we, if we ever got to this point, we, we have no hope of even making it through this kind of a test. We haven't passed test number one. Why would we be brought to test number two? We look at other Christians and we might admire their lot in life, but we refuse to die. Or we look at others and cringe at their lot in life because they're otherworldly and we really don't want to be like that we kind of like this world so notice Christ's lastly Christ's personal consolation how does he console this suffering church he says verse 10 again be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life now the crown here is not like we typically think of a prince's crown. It's a victor's wreath that they would that a, a, similar to our gold medal. 
Like you win the race, you get the wreath, you get the crown. Now this suits the revelation as a whole. We're going to see this. The, the victory is given to those who are faithful, but especially here. In this letter, over and over, we've seen that God's perspective is not typically our perspective. We, we say God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We say that stuff. We don't really believe it until we see what He says. You're in worldly poverty, but you're rich. They say they're Jews, but they're not. You're going to die and you win. It's, it's the, the complete reverse of what we typically imagine. It's, it, this is the way God thinks, not the way man thinks. They're not losers. They're winners. It fits very well with what Paul said in Romans 8. He mentions tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Not over them, not around them, but in them. Faithfulness unto death is the victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. How does that work? Because I'm not looking at this world. I have looked outside of this world. I've looked outside of myself. I'm not attached here. I've overcome everything that this world has to offer because my eyes are so fixed on something else. So the victory is death. or Death is the victory. And that steadfastness unto death is really a testimony to the victory that Christ already has over the devil. Every time a saint is faithful unto death, the devil is reminded he can do all that he, all that he wants. He can use every weapon at his disposal. He cannot beat the Christians. He can't get them to break. He cannot break them because they're faithful no matter what. So he offers this victor's wreath for those who remain faithful. Then he gives this invitation, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hear this, this word, if the Spirit is speaking to you in this word, don't ignore Him. Don't, don't start thinking about the whatabouts. This is the first thing we do. What about this? What about this? What well, can't be that? It can't be that. No, if the Spirit is speaking and you, you're, you're, you're able to at least in this moment admit, I'm so tethered to this world, I can't even imagine being in glory. Don't ignore it. How can you know that you wouldn't pass this test? Several questions that might help you. Do you love this world and the things of this world? If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Are you clinging to temporal things as if they are supreme? Do you refuse to accept the least bit of discomfort in life? Or do you say, well, I'll accept it, but I don't have to like it. Like it just gets under your skin to ever be uncomfortable. Are you always grasping for every possible creature comfort in every possible sphere of life just to make life a little more simple? Do you subconsciously set standards of living that you must have? I'm going to have this. I'm not going to live that way. Some people might want to live that way. I'm not living that way. I'm having this. Does your concept of biblical wisdom require that there be no suffering in your life? If that's your concept, then you will always find a way to weasel out of just obeying God. More specifically, is your spouse more important to you than Christ? Again, we would all say, well, no, of course not. But I mean, like, really, not theoretically, really. In your time, in your management, in your speech, and in the things that you do, is your spouse more important to you than Christ? Are your children more important to you than Christ? 
We had better get these things prioritized before Christ himself comes and begins to pry our fingers off of them. That, that's how he, he, how he weans you from this world. Is he starts taking the things that are the most dear to you. And once he's taken it all, what have you got left but to live for him? The point is to get to that first. I have nothing but him. And if he gives me his blessings, then I walk in his blessings and his grace. But I have nothing but him. Because Christ will. He's a faithful shepherd. He's a faithful savior. He will bring you out of yourself and to him. He will turn your gaze from this world if you belong to Him. He's going to do it. Think about the most eminent saints that we read about throughout history. They were used and are still used because their labors flowed from hearts that had been torn away from this world through sickness, disease, plague, death of husbands, wives, children, years of anxiety, toiling with very little fruit, slander from the world. That's our heritage. The reason that they were able to pen a single sentence that stands the test of time, that still grips the heart, is because God took something from them. They lost, they suffered, and they shared fellowship with Christ. And they were able to speak from here. And I wrestled all week, how do I preach a sermon on suffering when I feel that I've never suffered a day in my whole life? How do I do it, Lord? I take His grace as it comes. How often we long to soar like our heroes, but we refuse to suffer like our heroes. So if you know the Spirit of God is dealing with you, don't ignore Him. Hear Him and plead for a real, lasting work of grace in the soul. Pray that He will work in you and that you will have a humble and meek spirit to follow Him. That you don't have to learn in the most difficult way. But there's no way to get around some sort of suffering. Then he gives this promise. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, we'll see at the end of the book, is eternal damnation in the lake of fire. So those who continue faithful unto death, that is the first death, physical death, do not have to fear being hurt by the second death. They do not have to fear the lake of fire. But those who buckle under the pressures and give in will not only suffer physical death, but even after physical death and, and the life in this world, all they have to look forward to is the second death of the lake of fire. The only ones who are going to be glorified with Christ are those who suffered with Him. And then finally, ultimately, the greatest encouragement is who Christ is. Back up to verse 8, He begins with this. He leads off with who He is in every letter. The words of the first and the last who died... And came to life. Remember that the first and the last is, in, is a reference to the eternality of Christ as God. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He's the, the first and the last, the beginning, the end, the alpha, and the omega. He stands outside of time. He was here before we got here. He'll be here after we got here. He was here before we started suffering. And he'll be here after we're finished suffering. He's not... Ignorant of what's happening to his church. He's been watching the entire time. And yet at the same time, he is the one who died. A reference to his humiliation unto death. He suffered death for the sake of sinners. The God-man crucified and he really died. And he came to life. I asked my children this week, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that a man 
died, like really full-fledged died, and then came back from the dead. And they said, yeah, that's it. He died, and he came back to life. In other words, God the Son, who eternally is, took flesh and blood that he might obey and suffer as a man. He endured the cross, bore in his body the curse of death for sins that were not his, was raised to life. So he's defeated death. God in Christ has defeated death in a physical body. A real man like us has defeated death. And so those who follow him have this great hope, this joy that if I follow him into death, I'm going to come out the other side just like he did. Those who follow him with their cross are going to follow him out the other side of the veil of death. So... If he calls us to follow our Smyrnian brothers and sisters, we can trust that because, Christ's, because of Christ's blood, we will see them there. We'll meet them. We can say, hey, I read about you. We'll see them there. We'll see him with them, the one who defeated death for our sake. That's a great comfort to people who are about to die. It's not the end. One of the guys this week made a reference to Thomas Watson, who died in his prayer closet. And they said it was, some had commented that he probably didn't even know that he had died just went from the presence of God to the presence of God, from glory to glory. What a thought. Amen. So what, what busies your mind in your life? What habits constitute your daily routine? Here's a bit of, of counseling, pastoral counseling. You don't even have to make an appointment. What, what ails you? What, what bothered you last week? What bothers you today? What's coming up this next week that's just sort of ailing you? I would almost guarantee whatever it is, it's rooted in your white-knuckled grip of the things of this world. Almost without a doubt, you're gripping something in this world, and if you would just say, Christ is all I need to take hold of, it would go away. You refuse to die, refuse to deny yourself, doing everything you can to keep from taking up your cross, then life's going to be tough. Especially if, you're a, if you are a Christian and there's something in your life that you are hanging on to, that you refuse to let go, it's going to be torture. He will take it. If you're not a Christian, then you can cling to those things and it won't bother you at all. Life will be, life will be a breeze and you've got hell to look forward to. Will your life end in martyrdom? What's that to you? You follow Christ. It doesn't matter. We have our duty. Follow Christ no matter what. Let's pray that God would give us grace.